What's up, Smart Firefighting community? It's me, Kevin Sofen. And here at the Smart Firefighting Podcast, we talk about all things technology and change management within public safety and first responders around the world. In today's pod, you're going to hear from Wojciech Borgandziski. Sorry for butchering your last name, bro. Who's an associate professor and a deputy head of fire research department at the Building Research Institute of Warsaw, Poland. For his professional career, and I'm sure in some of his free time, he sets stuff on fire and tries to model that with a computer, something that professionals would like to call fire safety engineering. In this chat, we will talk about how the fire modeling can help influence evacuation procedures and also about how different training methods can be created based on this research. And also a, a really interesting take on the difference in thought between the building safety side, the prevention side of the house, and the first responder side, more the response side, and how this leads into conversations about the obstacles, but also opportunities that exist to create a better and safer world for everyone. Lots of fire and fun in this one. Enjoy. So Woj, how are you using fire science research to drive the future of fire safety for firefighters and the community at large? Oh man, huh. that's a big one to start. Not very well, I guess. That's not a problem. That's an opportunity to improve for the future. So I think even though the fire science community is, is on pretty good level academically, uh, we have conferences, journals, uh, papers and everything, a lot of research and going worldwide, I feel that the world of responders is like a parallel universe, you know? And I think that any issues, if you find, in sharing knowledge, in building a future, is not the challenges are not, you know, with better fire research or smarter fire responders or any updates on either sides, it's about bridging them together. And that's the gap, man. That's the place where I think uh, we could improve the most. So when you ask me how I'm translating my science to the realm where it can be used, first, I do science. I'm, I'm a professor. I do research. So I guess my end is covered in some ways by simply researching using fundamental principles to to uncover the rules that make or break fire safety, that define how fires will spread, behave, how you can extinguish them, when will they grow, what's the risks and hazards and stuff like that. But I also feel my, my role is much bigger than just researching that. And and currently my mission is is to build a bridge or multiple bridges between these universes and hopefully finally put that science into use. And th this also means listening a lot. And uh, that's the hard one, to exchange information and not evangelize. And I see, unfortunately, unfortunately a lot of people, they, they, they would go and evangelize about the science. And that's not the thing. I need discussions. And, and that's why I'm here uh, with you today. And that, that's why I love to hear from Smart Five Fighting Community. What are their thoughts on how we can do this better? Yeah, well said. And I love the idea of how we translate science into action. And I think there is a big challenge and distinction between the the building safety side, which is on kind of on the prevention, and then this first responder side, which is on response. Of course, there's community risk reduction, which has a big prevention side to it. But on this, you mentioned kind of these two different parallel paths when, when we're all actually on the same, We, I, I believe we all want the same goals. It, it could be wrong. But speak from a building safety side and and again, taking your knowledge and translating research into action, like for those that maybe haven't thought too much on the building safety side and how codes were developed to get us where we are today and, and maybe the mismatch of where the codes are and where they need to go, give me some insights and knowledge around on that whole conversation. Yeah, man. Buildings are complicated beasts. Buildings are not something you uh, would encounter 100 years ago. Now, I'm working in the Building Research uh, Institute, you know, and uh, I used to have this problem with some of my older professors in here who would put equilibrium sign between the building and the structure, and they would... Uh, focus only you know on the mechanical response of the structure how loads are being transferred in the building how stable and stiff it is and, and stuff like that and the more i was learning about fire safety the more i hated this way of thinking because structure is structure building is a building and buildings today are 
a complicated array of systems, installations, and different elements in a puzzle that have to work together to provide what they are meant to. They are provided to meant they, they are meant to provide shelter. They are meant to provide beauty in a way. They are meant to provide safety. Safety is what we we obviously focus. So to really comprehend the building side, you first need to acknowledge or take the fact that, that buildings are really, really complicated. And it is even for professionals who spend their lives building buildings, I, I doubt many people would comprehend the whole aspect of what goes into the building from ventilation systems, from water supplies, electricity, all the aspects of uh, heat transfer and energy efficiency of a building through very human things like how people use buildings, how people would adjust the building to what it uh, is to fulfill their needs. And of course, the aspect of the fact that the building will change its uh, way of use during its lifetime. Like buildings are created not for five years, they are created for thousands, if not hundreds of years. And it's very weird to assume that the building built today will function like this for the next hundred years. You know, something that today is a library, maybe a shopping mall or an office or a church or, or whatever. And you have no idea when will that happen and you have no way to react today to the future needs. And that's what is happening a lot in the modern world. We're changing how buildings are used. So it's a complicated puzzle and it is hard to expect, as I said, from professionals to, to comprehend the whole puzzle. But it's even harder to expect from responders to comprehend, especially that they are not wardens of a single building that they can learn through and through. But in their district, they may have thousands of buildings, each different, each living, each changing, each filled with a different technology and systems and and equipment and different strategies even. Yeah, it's, it's a tough word for responders to navigate through these complexities of buildings. And uh, me as working in this field of fire safety, fire science, and uh, researching buildings, I, I certainly did appreciate a lot this vastness of solutions and possibilities and, and technologies involved in modern buildings. So I think to get this discussion going, we really need to focus on, on making our communications easier, maybe. Maybe that's the key. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of we all are using these buildings. I mean, we lived in, there's now more than half the world's population living in urban environments. And so we live in these built environments. That's at least just the way that our modern society is built out. Not a bad or a good thing. It just is the way it is. A good point you bring up is that buildings use change over time. And you sometimes see old banks turn into Walgreens. You see old stadiums, you know, either, you know, get torn down. I mean, or you see these, the Olympics and the World Cups where all this new infrastructure is just built and then it just dilapidates or it turns into something else. And sort of what does that mean from a risk profile perspective? And, and I, what I like, we talked about too, is just like a building, a good building is a, is a functioning symphony of pieces that most humans walk in. We're just like, yeah, I walk in and put my coat over here and you know I, I sit in the chair over here but someone designed a hanger right to do that and, <laughs> yeah. you, and you may not appreciate that yeah there's all these pieces that no one necessarily thinks about you know over my shoulder there's a nice little retrofit hanger but it's what I, i'd love to kind of hear from you too is that like with the buildings changing over time and how this is driving research and maybe both regulations like big things that, that i could speak to in the past 20 years and one's more relevant or recent one being the rise of the lightweight construction materials and how the stuff we put in it and stuff we build up buildings burns faster burns hotter and changing the response time and that's been a huge methodology the brain shift for public safety first responders And then the other, and this is a, we could spend an hour just on this conversation, is the rise of lithium-ion batteries. And of course, there's great benefits to them, but also huge risks to how we respond. And that's more stuff that's in the buildings, but you see people charging their scooters at home and you know, how that leads to all these fires at home. So maybe those are kind of two conversations, but how has like 
the evolution of how we build stuff and the stuff that humans use driving maybe some of the research that you're doing and you know and some of the testing that that you're exploring fr science always has been uh, something that responds to what's ever happening in the world it has always been driven by fires by disasters and uh, once something big burns down it's us to step in and try to uh, figure out way why and how to prevent that so it's it always has been responsive even though we, we are trying to be more and more proactive in in finding the weak spots and i think uh, at least in in uh, Europe, the, the Grenfell Tower tragedy was uh, one of the wake up calls that everyone actually quite seriously took. That it's not okay to to sit silent when you see an issue emerging. It's not okay to pretend that there's no issue when you see something is potentially dangerous. So we we rather choose to step in and go public with our research and and try to find solutions before the next great fire happens. So definitely disasters have been a huge driver of how we are doing our science. I'm also an engineer, you know, I'm I'm not just a scientist. I'm a I'm an engineer, fire safety engineer, and uh, I used to be the car park guy, then I've been the, the malls guy, and now I'm doing tunnels, and I guess I've, I'm a tunnel guy now. I wonder what I'm going to be in five years. But uh, A man of many hats. Yeah, and no hair. <laughs> that. But uh, as an engineer, I also you know, do science to fill gaps which I need to design. Like I understand that I do not have this particular number, you know. Let let it be design fire. Let it be some kind of parameter of material that I'm using. Let it be a specific way how a particular thing responds to to high temperature. These are the things that I try to research and put in my research to receive this knowledge that I can employ in my everyday engineering. And that's the case. Uh, I bring it up because that, that's in a way a case of of electric vehicles and battery fires. You mentioned that. I didn't consider that a big threat in buildings. Then there was maybe 2018 or something, there was this viral fire in Shanghai where a Tesla burned down in a mall, sorry, in a car park underneath some building. There was a video of this this fire like growing on off, you know, poof. And there's suddenly a huge fire in a car park. And I was like, oh man, this is... This does not look like my design fire in the car park. So being then a car park guy, I had one car park that I've been designing at that point. So I've just stopped the CFD simulations I was doing for that car park and I just restarted them. But, uh, you know, changing the the growth rate from like some value of alpha to like immediate growth to one megawatt to see like what would happen if, if this magnet, of course, I had no idea what the numbers would be. I just ballpark numbered them. And my car park was not ready for that threat. If I, in my car park, use a similar scenario, it would not be ready. It would not be good. And immediately we've realized, okay, it's going to be years before we find the number of what the heat release rate of electric vehicle fire is, because it, it takes years of research. But we can start trying to understand the consequences immediately. And, and that's what we immediately jumped into, 20, into in 2018. And we've done a lot of numerical analysis, like 480 simulations, different configurations and and we've beyond any doubt for us at least we've proven that, that the height of the car park is critical if, if your car parks are high higher than three meters then it makes very low difference between a quickly growing electrical vehicle fire scenario and and a, and the normal one uh, internal combustion engine so we got this answer before we even know how big the fires are because today we we don't have a we still don't have a great design fire scenario for electric vehicles. So if you ask me how fire science can answer uh, threats like that, well, uh, by doing it <laughs> immediately. Yeah. Well, interesting talking about the car parks and just this idea of we have these built environments and then we put new stuff in it. And then we realize that maybe actually we're not prepared for these threats and now we say, you know, the Grenfell Tower disaster is one thing, but then now kind of this rise of electrical cars, whether they're self-combusting or they're they're going into flames for different reasons. I know I had heard too there's some car parks that are that have signs that say you know, electrical cars, you know, not allowed. I you know I've only seen some photos like on Reddit of it. I haven't seen it with my own eyes. But you know, that the way to maybe handle and deal as a car park owner or a car, you know, someone that has that's storing cars 
one way to deal with it is just to try and avoid it. But then when you see you know, here in North America, I know the president signed some bill that uh, I think 50% of car manufacturers, the, the cars created by 2030 need to be EVs. So it's sort of like based on macro regulations, like there's, we need, there's no kind of, hey, EVs aren't going to be here. They're going to be part of our society. And I think now it's a matter of how do we both build better moving forward and how do we retrofit what we already have to deal with these threats? I'm going to take this leap because, yeah, it's an interesting example of how all of the things must work together to create a safe world. You know, if we ban, that, that's the easiest thing. You can ban vehicles from entering a car park. But if you do that, did we win or did we lose? Like, what is the outcome and who benefits from a ban? Does the society really benefit? If you want to answer that question, you first need to find the probability of your fire, the consequences of your fire, calculate the some unbiased metric like life quality index. And only through that very complicated and very long and very painful risk assessment with a metric in the end, you can tell if society did really benefit from banning the vehicles. And if you take into account the socioeconomic costs of banning these vehicles in car parks, the fact that you will have to use open land to store them because it's not that people will stop using vehicles because they are now banned in car parks. If you start really truly factoring all the numbers in some ultimate measure that is unbiased, you may actually find out that by banning them, we lost. Even though I have not done these calculations, I'm quite confident that banning is not an option. We need to find ways how to make it work. And to find how to make it work, you need multiple elements. First, you need to have civil engineers to understand how to build robust, resilient car parks, which goes back to what I've said about the height, for example. It's such a critical parameter. You cannot just cut it short because it will cost you a little bit more to dig a little deeper into the ground. If you do that, you change the risk profile of your building tremendously. Then you need smart designers of the safety systems in a building who can make systems that not only are fit for this one design fire that we have today, but that can handle threats from a large variety of, of possible fires in the car park. Also some that we may not know even today, you know. Who knows, maybe in 10 years we will all forget about electric vehicles and we're going to all drive hydrogen vehicles. You don't know that. I don't know that. Maybe. If I had a crystal ball. Yeah, 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 huh, man. That would be nice, <laughs> wouldn't it? Or I guess it would be boring. Then you need to recognize the fact that the, you have a building that allows your occupants to exit. You have a building that extracts the smoke produced in it. You have sprinklers that can limit the temperature. But you still have a burning vehicle in the car park. And there is a societal expectation that heroes wearing capes will run into the car park and will take it out or will put it down. And now, how do we make the battleground fit for the responders so they can take effective actions without being exposed uh, to risk in a way that would be not too big for the action that they're doing? You know, we don't want to expose them to too high risk when they're putting out a, a small electrical vehicle fire. Because they, these fires can also be small but last for, for weeks. Next question is, do we really need to put them out? Is it maybe okay to just take them outside uh, into a location where they can just burn off completely? When I'm doing battery tests, and this is a perspective of a laboratory, I hate when the batteries go down halfway the fire test. If they burn down completely, I, at least I know they are safe now. If they don't burn down completely, I have no idea what to do with them. And it takes us a lot of time for safety precautions to, to store them until they are safe. So to, have a, to not ban, which is a simple decision, you need to have discussion with many, many bodies, including building officials, including designers, including system designers, including fire safety experts, and including responders. And from this giant discussion, which is a hell to get them all on one track, because each of them will have different goals, perspectives, different backgrounds, different experiences. Only from, from that, a new way can emerge that is that that is really safe. But man, that's a really painful path to go, but but necessary one, but a hard one. Yeah. I mean, you touched on a lot there in terms of within this whole 
fire safety conversation, there's a matter of it's almost it's impossible to rule out the human element that something eventually somewhere will happen causing a need for an action. So some disaster is going to happen, some fire is going to start, someone's going to get hurt, something. So there's that kind of how do we reduce the damage to the property? And obviously that's kind of one conversation. The second is, of course, how can we allow first responders to take effective action, which you mentioned. And the third that you touched on too, that I'd love to dive into a little bit more is how to get people out safely. And a lot of this is dealing with the interaction with smoke and fire and escape routes. And I know you've had a lot of conversations with Reno, Guillermo, and and just other people that are doing amazing work with fire science modeling and how that impacts sort of like evacuation routes and whatnot. Dive into that for a second, maybe some of the research and how you're using that for different structures, whether it's a, a manufacturing plant or whether it's a parking lot. And I preface this too, looking at like, when I see a, a 2D map of an escape route, like on the elevator, I, I think like, okay, like, I guess I'm here and if something happens, I should run to those stairs. Like, is that preparing me? Don't know. So I, there's obviously a lot in that, but, you know, from someone that's doing research and I'd love to know your thoughts on sort of the, you know, the evacuation modeling and how that is turned into practice. Yeah. You know, years ago, there was this viral post on Reddit when someone asked if you could tell people one important thing from your current work that they may not be aware of, what would you tell them? And if I recall correctly, I wrote to them something like that. Hi, I'm Wojciech. I'm a fire safety engineer. I am spending hours or days of my time and people are spending thousands of dollars on modeling buildings and designing safety features. So you have one more minute to escape. Please don't waste it on, on taking a selfie with the fire and just follow the, the guidance. And uh, that's still true, you know, many years later. We do a lot of sophisticated science and engineering to provide minutes, literally minutes. We're battling for minutes, not hours, not days. We're battling for minutes, sometimes even seconds of how long a route will be completely available to those in need for escape. This is a difficult job, you know, because... In the end of systems of smoke control, of modeling the fire and smoke, we are fairly primitive related to to humans. We just assume, okay, they will need between 60 60 seconds and three minutes to start moving, and then they will start moving at the velocity of 1.2 meter per second towards the nearest exit following the shortest path. That that would be a typical assumption for, let's say, an office, you know. And, and I would use that very happily to estimate how much time I need to get those people to get out and then design my smoke systems, smoke control systems, so this is provided. On the other end, if you start considering uh, human behavior, now... The deeper you go into that, the more interesting it becomes because suddenly you have the whole decision process. Suddenly you have dynamics of groups of people where they will act different than than a single person. You have different personal preferences, different experiences of every single person in the building. You will have leaders emerging in that that will be followed or if a leader does not emerge, no one will follow anyone. They will wait for uh, first action to be taken. So for, because we need to engineer, like we cannot say, okay, I'm unable to engineer your building because I don't understand human behavior in fire. I cannot do that. They will just find another engineer who will happily do that, uh, being maybe a little more comfortable diving into unknown. But uh, I need to work with something. So our assumptions are not bad, I think, for a start. But to say we truly uh, we truly solve the human fire interaction in the buildings, making sure it's hundred percent safe. No, we don't do that. We do the second best thing. We estimate how long you would need to escape, how long time we would need to take to escape the building to safety, and we give you the time, and that's the time you have in fire. Of course, it will be different. Mm-hmm. We choose a scenario, we choose some assumptions. Uh, every fire is different, but yeah, that's what we're currently doing. And interested in that and like, and how, 
I love looking at the crossover from fire safety engineers to first responders to other entrepreneurs and how this is all kind of interconnected to ultimately providing a, a safe and equitable society for everyone. But when thinking about, let's say, for example, of a, a fire in a building or in, in needing to figure out what's the best way to get people out. And you talked about finding, we're not looking for hours, we're looking for seconds and minutes of time to give you time to do that. I've seen and personally been in situations where I know when the disaster happens, your fight or flight mode gets into, into action. You all of a sudden are like, you are tunnel focused and you're, you know, you just, your heart rate's up and you kind of just go to this instinctual uh, caveman mode. And what are your thoughts in terms of like how you train people? I mean, training first responders in their conversation, but I'm thinking of workers or civilians that go to, uh, especially even like sporting events where they're, they maybe only go to this place like once or twice a year. What are your thoughts on how the research translates into preparedness of people and are those 2D signs that you see, are those, are those enough or like any, anything you're seeing that, that maybe is intriguing you in regards to that kind of conversation? That's a difficult world. That's a difficult thing to do to train population because it's fire stuffs. Fire doesn't happen. They don't happen to me. They will eventually maybe happen to my neighbor, which I'm pretty fine with, but not, not to me, right? And I've never had a fire happen to me. So why should I spend hours training to how, how to respond to a fire? It's difficult to build a mindset of training people. Now, when we are designing spaces, when I'm designing a sports arena, I would design it in a way that I can really empty the whole thing twice before uh, the fire becomes a danger. It's a completely different level of design going into that type of structure because there will be a large crowd. The, the hazards are on, on completely different level. So even untrained population in a very well-prepared and designed space, there are spaces which we literally designed for infinity. Like the, the fire never reaches levels at which it's threatening to the population. So if you're in, in such a space, you don't really need uh, that much training. However, the most dangerous place is your home. You're probably most likely to die at your home, more likely to die at home than at sports arena, especially from fire. I think a lot must go into training people how to react to fires that happen in their like everyday setting, at your office, at your home. What to do when you're sleeping and there's a fire in your kitchen. Why you should not store your electric scooter at your only path between where you are and your exit, you know? So if you think about the societal benefit of how do we provide the most safety in the most cost-efficient way, training people how to deal with this simplest threats in their everyday environment is probably the best. And for that, you don't need fancy modeling. For that, you don't need super exquisite three-dimensional science that will illuminate the pathway in front of a person. For that, you need simple education and finding ways to really reach the population mindset. And I think there are organizations who are doing a really great job at showcasing the basic threats, uh, teaching people about the most important hazards in their own environments. UL is doing fantastic. FSRI is doing fantastic job on that. Then next step is, is your workplace, um, offices, car parks. And here is an interesting because these places, because they are fairly small, small corridors, uh, small compartments, this tend to be more difficult to provide tenable conditions for a very long time because of space. If you have a lot of space, if you have open space, you have a lot of place to, to hold the smoke in, in a way that it doesn't threaten people. If you have two and a half meter tall corridor, which I have absolutely no idea how much feet is that, but I guess a lot. Uh, it's Shaquille O'Neal and a bit. And if you have such a corridor, there's not much space to keep the smoke away from people. It will eventually reach them. So in these spaces, I think technical innovation and solutions, one, in space of bringing information to the people, dynamic signage, maybe smart evacuation maps, voice alarms, you know, all these things that can guide people to safety with high credibility 
and maybe even distinguishing between individual people in the population. Like if there was a system that could track every human in the building and have a plan for each person, how to get them to safety and just guide them through the building as they are evacuating, that would be the pinnacle of, of this. And I believe this is possible. We could already achieve this with current technology. Maybe we just need uh, some little more innovation in this space. And one last thing that I wanted to bring, if you're talking about innovation, I think we entered an extremely interesting space in terms of training with augmented and virtual reality settings where you can literally map someone's office and simulate real fires in them and have them in a very deep, immersive environment to escape from those. I, I believe these things are brilliant because you cannot teach experience. You have to experience experience. And experiencing something in VR may be the second best thing to the real world. So I'm a huge believer in these developments, and I believe in a space where really tech and innovation can change something, I think this level is where these types of technologies can work. Because at home, realistically, you're not going to overinvest. In, like, if you had money, you should have put sprinklers in your house. That's that's number one thing. And, uh, and you're not going to invest in dynamic signage for your home. For sports arenas and skyscrapers and uh, railway stations, airports, there has been a lot of investments already. And if a system exists that makes a difference, it's already there, at least from my experience. But there's uh, this ton of middle space in, in medium-sized buildings where I guess that that's a good space to innovate and, and bring safety to people. Yeah, I love your phrase on you can't train experience. You need to experience experience. And that's definitely an advantage of VR. But I think there's also a lot of evolving ways to use some of these new models we have and turn it into content that can be trained on, even in 2D settings, to be able to consume content and really meet people where they're at. And I think that's what excites me about technology in a lot of ways is removing barriers to access to education, access to information. And I think, and I actually haven't even said this yet on the podcast, but it, it's great to have a fellow podcaster on my podcast. If you haven't heard of the Fire Science Show from Woj, you need to tune in and we'll put the links in there. But I, I'm kind of, from your experience podcasting, in your experience, I mean, you're you're a man of, you wear many hats, being an engineer, researcher, father, podcaster, all these things. I'm interested in, from even kind of the podcasting side, or it could be in general, like what's something that you've learned in the past couple of years from someone else that's like, that either is like really made you sit up straighter in your chair or, you know, whether it, it, out of excitement or fear, as far as any sort of trends with things happening or some new technology that you see that could be applied, but it's not being applied well enough. And I know we talked about EVs, so we could speak on uh, that more, but you know, what else is on top of the mind for you that you've learned from your work? Yeah, if you want an, a really brutal and honest answer, I have been thinking about this a lot. And I was preparing uh, for a one-year anniversary of Fire Science Show. I've done like 50 interviews with brilliant people, brilliant minds of fire science. Really, the, the best I could find on various topics, you know, from combustion to evacuation to modelers, firefighters, people who research, people who apply amazing group of people and i was contemplating like what are we lacking like and it was not research that we were lacking it was not innovation that we were lacking there, there were so many good ideas you know we literally had a solution for anything that comes really like even the toughest problems evs it, it, it's figure outable we can figure it out what i've reflected over doing that podcast is Really, we really lack communication. Like we have fire science, it just doesn't reach people it needs to reach. And it goes both ways. As I said in the beginning of the episode, communication is not only talking, it's also listening. And I have too many, I know too many people in the realm of fire science science that are blind to the needs of responders that are blind to needs of the construction engineering uh, world community. Because if I propose you the new super funky gadget that solves all the problems of the world in terms of fire, but it's so expensive that no one will build it into the building, 
And it's so annoying to first responders that the first thing they will do when they arrive is to turn the gadget off. And the gadget is not very useful after all, even that if in my perfect simulation it solved the problems. And boy, we have a lot of these gadgets that are put into use without giving a serious thought on how all stakeholders will uh, use a benefit from. So, yeah, man, the answer is, is really simple. We need to talk more. We need to, but really talk, not just communicate, not, not just give a presentation on a topic, high five and go back to what we're doing. We really need to talk and understand needs of other people people and we need to do this research together and only that way we can achieve something that we could call a fire safe world we fire science will not do that alone like we're a bunch of clever people who like to play it with uh, fruit numbers and you know very uh, complex uh, concepts of of combustion and and stuff like that and that that's pretty cool but you also need to understand how does a firefighter approach a fire and you also need to understand how investor building a building makes their decisions on which technology to put in their building and which not. If you're blind to that, you're doing science for science, which is not a great science after all. And also, that's also, you know, to build this bridge, to build this communication, to, to cover this communication gap. That, that was one of the reasons I started my podcast, interviewing fire scientists, giving them another way to communicate. And, you know, I'm... I'm the ears and, and mouth of the community, and I try to ask them the important questions that, that come from the experience of, of, of people behind me, the ones who I represent. And you, as, as the spokesperson of uh, the smart firefighting community, you're doing the same great and important job. And I wish there were much many more shows like this that bring people together in a setting that promotes real conversation. Yeah, well said. And I like the, I don't want to just have conversations to check a box or for any sort of personal vanity. I couldn't agree more that, that we have all the technology and we have all the insights we need, but it's part change management, but it's, it's really, it's, it's different stakeholders. And whether that's the, the mayor and the fire chief and the, the firefighter to the general John Doe in the community to the principal of the school to the risk manager of a manufacturing plant. And one approach that we're taking too is doing more of these roundtables where this is great. We're hosting a conversation offline. Me and you will post in a couple of weeks and, and we're going to chop it up and do some good content. But one thing that I've really moved towards, and I also, I'm an adjunct professor at DePaul University teaching a class around developing sustainable strategies. And I remember thinking, feeling major imposter syndrome. I was like, how did I get this job? Like, why, why am I qualified for this? But what I loved when I was in formal education myself was learning from my peers. And I think it's so important to facilitate two-way conversations. Like you say, it's, it's asking questions, talking, and most importantly, listening. And so I, I, just, I think this creating two-way streets amongst the, the disparate stakeholders, I would retweet your comment and say that is correct. You know, that to me is the biggest gap that exists and hence I think the need for our continued communication within this realm. And I think it's a, my, it's an ask everyone listening about, you know, keep submitting ideas for what you want to hear about, keep supporting podcasts like this and, and, and Woj's podcasts and just there's, but it can't just be to check a box sake. I mean, we, we need to continue to turn the research and the science and these conversations into action to ultimately, like what you said, create a fire safe world. I really like that term. And I, I don't think I've actually heard that term. And I guess to, to, to turn the focus on access for a second, like in your context, like what is a fire safe world? And you know, what, what's a fire safe world in your words? I'm a huge believer in risk engineering and because I find risk truly the only unbiased, non-emotional way talking about fire. I've learned that when I've entered the tunneling space, because in tunnels, you literally cannot design a tunnel in which in every single scenario you go through, no one will have harm. It's simply impossible. Like the consequences of some events are so catastrophical you, you, that there's not a piece of technology that could prevent them. And then you learn that these events are so rare that uh, maybe it 
is not worth it to invest to prevent against them because they are so rare. That's a concept of how you do risk engineering. Of course, it's of course it's more advanced than that. And of course, I have podcast episodes about that. Uh, but essentially, you would love, you learn really what you deal in your building with and what are the consequences of thereof. And for me, um, a fire-safe world is one in which we've done everything that was reasonable to improve our outcomes of fires. It is not a world in which you do not have a fire. We always will have fire in our world. It's a force of uh, nature, you know, it's it's like wind and water. We always will have fire. It's about managing these risks in a way that leads to a minimized risk profile that is economically justifiable, that is acceptable by the society at the level where you know that you really could not invest more in fire safety to improve it. It's a difficult concept, you know, and of course, if I ever am, I hope I'm not, but if I ever end up in a, in a fire, I'm not going to calculate the risk profiles to give myself comfort that I am in huge danger, <laughs> but it's low probability, so I should be happy with it. Of course, it's a, that's a philosophical thing, uh, your personal uh, risk versus societal risk. But I believe that this is uh, the true Maybe not true. That's the most unbiased method we can measure it. And I will say something that's maybe difficult to many people. Like in not every building, in not every setting, a fire is the worst thing that can happen, you know. It's also not about over-investing in fire at the cost of other things. Fire safety already costs a lot. And sometimes it costs so much people would do very stupid things to just not have the costs done. And the problem that the further you go from the Western world, the more issues with that you'll have. Fire safety is a cost. Sometimes it's more cost-effective to build a hospital than cover every tunnel you have with a fireproof lining. And we are living in a world that has limited resources. And I, I would love to know that, that these resources are spent in a reasonable way. And overspending on fire safety just because you would like this one more fancy gadget is i don't think that's the way you know i also had some hard conversations you know i'm talking with all these fire safety experts and people who are designing let's say skyscrapers skyscrapers are extremely fire safe environments and we're talking about technology that will cost hundred thousands of dollars and they will give one thousandth of a person uh chance uh, that your outcomes are better in fire and at the same time there's one billion people without access to running water you know and uh, when you start looking at that from that perspective it i sometimes feel like we're spending inadequate amount of resources and efforts on things that do not really matter so a fire safe world is a place where we spend our resources on places that matter and we try to achieve most bang of our buck protecting people from harm in fires. That's the one that I would like to live in. Well said. And you had a lot in there that resonated with me and especially with aspects of our community on both the entrepreneurial startup side and fire chief. But kind of one of the final questions I want to ask you today is what is something that you would say to entrepreneurs or startups that are trying to innovate in the space? Of course, there's a big there's a lot of differences between the tech you would create from a hardware software side and prevention response side, but still your last message of utilizing your resources most effectively to deliver outcomes that are better for society as a whole, I think is a great overarching message. But what would you tell an entrepreneur or that's trying to do good and is kind of or still kind of early on in the process of, of figuring out their niche within this whole fire safe world? Yeah, that would be to ask yourself why and ask it many times. Why this product is being invented? What purpose does it serve? What problem does it solve? I know that from my fire scientist career pathway, I used to be very bad at that. I thought, okay, the problem is uh, we don't extract smoke soon enough. So let's innovate in the space of sensors where I will invent something that will detect fire five seconds earlier. 
where the real reason, where, where the real problem on the building is not how quick the sensor is, but the guy who will turn the sensor off because it annoyed him, you know? And we really need good identification of real problems that are truly holding us back and not to innovate in some virtual space in a place where this innovation, okay, it sounds cool on a paper. You know, you have 5% more than your competition on XYZ parameter. But does it really change the fire safety landscape of a building? Does it really help the building owner, the building occupant, the first responder? In what way? Is it simpler to implement? Is it easier to maintain? Is it more robust? Does it provide more resiliency to the building? Does it open new opportunities for the firefighters to battle on the scene? These are important questions, not how quick my sensor will detect or whatever fancy thing I, I'm going to provide now. We don't need gadgets. We need solutions. And there are brilliant people innovating in this space. Uh, once you start asking yourself these important questions, what is the problem on every level of a building, who does this problem affect and what would be the most efficient solution to solve that problem, you may have uh, the next big innovation in the fire space. Because think about like what were the biggest innovations in the fire space? Sprinklers, they were innovated because you needed firefighter really quickly in the place. So why not just build it into the building, you know? How did we get automatic smoke detectors? Like there was a button that you need to press to call the firefighters. And then suddenly you had a building that called the fire department on its own. How brilliant is that? You see, there's a need and there's a solution. There is many problems now in the ways how buildings are being built. We need to build buildings faster. We need to build them in a more sustainable way. We are thinking, I think, a huge space to innovate is within the circular economy and the, all the concepts that buildings are designed with their change in life or how to dismantle them and rebuild them elsewhere, you know? Have you ever heard about the fire system that you can build into a building and then take it out of that building and, and use it in another building? I have not, because they're always one-use one uh, systems. If you build your your system into building, usually it's impossible to, to adjust with that, adapt that. You can only tear it out and, and, and put a new one. That's not the most sustainable thing you can do. So I see a huge uh, potential to innovate because here I identify the problem. We do not have a way to reuse. And I try to act on that problem. And if you truly innovate in this space, I think you're going to achieve uh, great success. If you innovate in a space where you just want, when you just deliver a product like everyone else and you just want to have this one single characteristic that outperforms your competitors, you may focus too much on that characteristic and lose something else that happened multiple times. Or there will just come someone who, who will show that this characteristic may be not the most representative for the use and you, you're left with nothing. So... If uh, I'm not an innovator, I'm, I'm surely not a manufacturer. So. You're a piece of the puzzle, and I really appreciate all that context. And I think, I mean, we're we're almost creeping up in an hour, and I think it's easy to say we could we're we're due for another pod. I feel like I almost whoop. We're only scratching the surface, you know. It's a good pod, and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh geez, I'm I have to have to run to something else here. But I think one kind of final sort of question I always ask um, people on the show is. If you could leave us with like a, a kind of final question or quote or a challenge or it's kind of like a, a mic drop, you could say. But if there's something that kind of that, that's burning in your brain or kind of a, something you live by, I'd love kind of any sort of final thoughts to wrap up our, our conversation here today. Huh. Now that that's a challenge because we've covered so much in this uh, <laughs> in this podcast episode that if you if you want another one, I have a good mic and I'm always here, so <laughs> just give me a call. Uh, you should think about building as an as a living organism with many organs, with many functions, with many goals that everyone in the process sees in a different way. Like, think about your next building or your next uh, project. Like, how would the user see it? How would the owner see it? How would the construction company who's building it see it? How would the first responder see it? How would the 
government <laughs> see it? Or, or how would the people who are responsible for dismantling it at the end you see it? How would people who would like to change it to something completely else see it? You know, try to put as many perspectives on your building and try to identify as many questions and challenges for that building there are related to a specific fire hazard, let's say, or something. Because through that exercise, you will start building this holistic understanding of the building. And you might suddenly realize that a simple solution from one stakeholder's perspective is a catastrophe from another's one perspective. And once you start seeing buildings like this, it's like in a matrix. You suddenly start to to fill it and the things that you start to propose are things that solve the most people's problems and that that these are good solutions. So if you need exercise, try to think about building. And there's a word, I hate it holistically. So <laughs> think holistically about buildings, but but uh, in reality, just, just uh, put a different pair of eyes looking at the building from different perspectives. So you're not blind to the needs of other stakeholders because they're all important. And if we don't talk, you don't know. And uh, yeah, you don't deliver safety in a reasonable way. Man, man. Well, Woj, from one podcaster to another, thank you for what you're doing, the awareness, the education, bridging the gap, and especially as what you're doing from a fire science engineer and research. Uh, it's all super important. I'm really glad to have captured your perspective today. And, and frankly, I, I know this is, is only the first of many for our conversations. And just thank you for all that you're doing. And I look forward to chatting again soon. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you for the invitation. Looking forward to your discussion panels. I, I love this format and we need more of that. So thanks for pioneering this innovation in the space of communication. Man, innovating in communication. I should put that in there my we LinkedIn. Go. I should put that in my <laughs> LinkedIn handle. <laughs> Write it down. Write it down. <laughs> Cheers, man. Cheers, Bush. Thank you so much for listening to the Smart Firefighting Podcast today. If you enjoyed what you heard and got any value, please drop us a rating, leave us a comment, or reach out to us on social media. Have a great day, and together we can advance the future of smart firefighting.